Now, of course, we have so many verses and connections that the book of Revelation picks up on themes uh, from the Old Testament. This is one of them. We're going to see this later in the book of Revelation, but let's take a look at Isaiah 21, verse 9. 21.9 says, Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in, in pairs. And one answered and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, Isaiah 21.9, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. O my thresh people and my afflicted of the threshing floor. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. The oracle, which is a heavy message or a weighty message concerning Edom, one keeps calling to me from Seir. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire and come back again. Now, we'll see this later in the book of Revelation about Babylon, but let's turn over to Revelation 8, and let me just kind of, again, paint with some um, big brushstrokes of what we looked at so far. And as you turn there, let me just point out to you, the first mention of wrath in the book of Revelation is actually found in verse 16 of chapter 6. So just a quick recap. 6.16 says, They said, Revelation 6.16, to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now that's the first mention of wrath in the book of Revelation. For the great day of their wrath, Revelation 6.17 has come. You could translate that is about to commence or occur. And who is able to stand? Now that is the response to the sixth seal. So you'll notice if you're still in Revelation 6, the sixth seal is broken in verse 12. There's cosmic disturbances. This is the sign or the precursor of the day of the Lord. We talked about a cosmic disturbance where the natural lights no longer uh, shine or give their light. And it's a sign that Jesus is coming. The natural lights go out. We saw that in Matthew 24 and other places in the Old Testament. And the people, as they look at this darkened sky and the sign that the Lord is coming, uh, they cry out. They want to die. They ask for rocks to fall on them. They ask to be hidden, 616, from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. They know the great day of the wrath or their wrath has come or is about to commence. Now, when we saw that, we saw an interlude or a pause between the sixth and seventh seals and two things happened and I hope you know what they are by now. They are the sealing of the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes mentioned there and a great multitude that appears in heaven standing before the throne. They had palm branches in their hands and they're singing a salvation song. They're an uncountable number and one of the elders says to John, who are these people? Where did they come from? And John gives the best answer you can give when you don't know. He says, my Lord, you know. And he says, these are they that come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, right? And they are singing salvation songs to God. So 144,000 sealed. They're Jewish for ownership and protection. The great multitude, a great uncountable number. Suddenly in heaven, suddenly before the throne room of God, that happens between the 6th and 7th seal. And then Revelation 8.1, if you pick it up in your Bible, Revelation 8.1 says, And when he broke the 7th seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And we know at this point in the uh, history of man, if you will, there is still time. There is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. We know in Revelation 6.9, the martyrs underneath the altar say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood upon those who are on the earth? How long until you avenge us? And they are, say, they are told to rest a little while longer. It's just going to be a little while. How far gone is the night? We saw in Isaiah 21. Well, in this case, there's a little while. There's a short space of time 
where the judgment of God is about to begin. But before the actual judgment begins, there is going to be a pause, a silence in heaven for about the space of a half an hour. Now, we do know that we've been seeing a lot of heavenly scenes so far. We've been taken right into the throne room of God. And what have we seen in that throne room? We've, we've seen how long until you avenge our blood. And we've also seen a ton of praise going on. We just saw the great multitude singing songs, singing with a loud voice. But now heaven goes silent. Heaven has a, you might call, the calm before the storm. Maybe in some ways it's a stunned silence because the wrath of God is about to come. And even though sometimes when we look at what we call the imprecatory psalms, when the psalm writer's asking for God to judge people and we, we wonder about that and all of that, we, we think, well, you know what? There are times when judgment is, is very appropriate. It's what should happen. But then the reality of the judgment, does it rock you a bit to think of people on the planet who are going to suffer the judgment of God. I mean, we're about to go into a couple of what I would call very ugly and horrific chapters in the book of Revelation. And while we've covered a lot of different things so far in the book, uh, of all the things that we've covered, I have not seen the wrath of God. I've seen Antichrist, I've seen war, famine, pestilence, and martyrs. Those are the first five seals. I've seen the cosmic sign, the sixth seal we just read about. But you could say the first five seals or the four writers of the apocalypse plus martyrdom is what man has always done to man. Think about it. War. Think about false Christ. War, famine, pestilence, death. It's always existed. It's what man has always done to one another. When Jesus was talking about these subjects, he talked about that these Things that you'll see are the beginning of birth pangs. And the beginning, uh, using the metaphor of a woman in labor, uh, they will intensify. And so while these are things that we've always seen, they're going to get worse. Now, we also know that th the judgment has been held off. For example, if you look at uh, Revelation, oh, where are we at? Seven, look at verse three for a second. Revelation 7, verse 3 says, Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Uh, don't bring the judgment yet until the sealing occurs. You're going to see the earth, the sea, and the trees are going to be impacted by the judgment. But don't do it yet. Don't harm them yet until the sealing process takes place. Another evidence that the wrath of God has not begun yet. I will just submit to you, for those of you who are wrestling with your timing of the rapture, if the whole seven seals are the day of the Lord from seal one and following, why aren't the 144,000 sealed before the first seal is broken? If the seal, the sealing process of the 144,000 is for ownership and protection so that these people, these 144,000, don't experience the wrath of God, then why weren't they sealed before the first seal is broken? Just think about it. Because I don't think you have God's wrath yet. What I think you do have, though, is persecution and tribulation, which has really been the story of the Jewish people, really since their inception. And it's been the 2,000-year history of the church. In fact, the seed of the church, it's been said, has been the blood of the martyrs. And so this is what we have. But all of a sudden, when we come to Revelation 8.1 and we come to the famous seventh seal, we get silence. Jesus breaks the seventh seal, Revelation 8.1, and there's silence in heaven for about the space of a half an hour. They go from celebration to silence. They go from lauding and praising the Lord with loud acclamation to a silence. And that tells you that there is times in heaven when silence is appropriate. There's times at your house when silence is appropriate. For those of you who have children, times in the car when silence is extremely important. How many of you have taught your children the quiet game? That's a good game to teach them. So, yeah. And there's adults that should be taught that game as well. But anyway, we won't, we won't go there tonight. Okay, so here's a book. <laughs> here's a book that you may not have turned to recently, but it's the book of Zephaniah. Would you help your neighbor find the book of Zephaniah? 
Okay, we're going to look at Zephaniah chapter 1. It's towards the end of the Old Testament, okay? So Zephaniah, you can tell your friends that you studied some passages from Zephaniah tonight as you go out to frozen yogurt. So here you go. Now there's some possibilities of places where the silence idea comes from. Here's one of them. Zephaniah 1 verse 7. Zephaniah 1 verse 7. It says, people are still struggling with it, but here we go. It says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated or set apart his guests. Zephaniah 1.7, there's your silence before the Lord God. For what is near? The day of the Lord. Now I've submitted to you another way of saying the wrath of God is the day of the Lord. I believe these are interchangeable phrases or terms. The day of the Lord is the wrath of God. So the silence is before the Lord God. The day of the Lord is near, and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Now, if you go down to verse 14 of the same chapter, it says, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now in the book of Habakkuk, which is just a few pages backwards, so go towards Genesis. You'll come to a verse, and it's Habakkuk 2. And let's look at verse... Uh, 20. Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And then if you look at one more with me, go to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2. So Zechariah is to your right now. So you've got Zephaniah, you've got Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi. So that's how the Old Testament ends with the books. Look at chapter 2. Look at the last verse of chapter 2, verse 13 says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. So you'll notice the mention of silence before the day of the Lord, the mention of the Lord being aroused. We even saw in uh, Zephaniah some sort of offering or sacrifice that's going to take place. And we may have an explanation in the book of Isaiah. One more time to Isaiah 34. So that's back towards Genesis again. Isaiah 34, look at verse 1. Isaiah 34, verse 1. And as you go there, I want to comment on just stuff that's going around in terms of our country and news reports and what we're seeing. So hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, um, you name it, we have the problem of evil. And we're always wrestling with the problem of evil. And I heard an interchange between a phone caller and someone who was doing a call-in show. And the phone caller was saying, you know, how, what do we make of hurricanes and tornadoes? And, and to what do we attribute these problems of evil in weather and stuff like that? You know, I, I understand if someone, a gunman goes and shoots somebody or if someone does something dumb. But, but how, do you, how do you account for the weather? Uh, doing this kind of devastation. And the response was this. We live on a fallen planet. We all know that, right? It's a broken world. The world fell and a curse occurred on the planet. The planet is not what it should be. The, even the natural created order is crying out for its, its makeover, its redemption. So the world and its systems are not what they ought to be. And so hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes are a consequence of a planet that is really under a curse. And it amazes me how well things work most of the time. Would you agree? 
I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. And you think about even our bodies. Doctors talk about it. it's amazing that our bodies don't break down more than they do because there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And for most of us, we get more concerned about how the outside looks rather than the inside. But the inside is really what matters when you think about how well your body is going to work. But here's the thing. When you, think, when you think about natural disasters, as we call them, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, we can talk about sickness and all these things. We have a planet that is under a curse that is going to experience a renewal and restoration at some point. That's what's ahead of us, a planet that's going to be restored. And so in many ways, when we see these things happening, this may be a little hard for us to take, but in many ways, we have to say it's my fault, what do you mean it's my fault when a hurricane comes? Here's what I mean. It's our fault. It's all of us who are in Adam because basically we brought this upon ourselves, right? Now, I know a lot of you, the first person you want to talk to when you get to heaven is Adam, and I totally understand that. Some of you want to talk to Eve, right? Some of you don't want to just talk. You want to have a stern talking to. But I think theologians have said if we were there we probably would have done the same thing. And maybe, you know, when we start looking at a broken world and a broken planet, instead of shaking our fists at God, maybe we need to look a little bit more at us. Would you agree? Amen. I mean, these are not easy concepts, I will grant you. And the problem of evil is a problem. That's why they categorize it that way. But it's just something to, to contemplate. Now, Isaiah 34 says these words. It says, verse 1, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation, Isaiah 34, 2, is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out. Their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. Now notice the context of this statement. And all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. We saw that in Revelation 6. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Just take note of it. The current host of heaven will wear away. God's going to remake the heaven and the earth. For my sword is satiated in heaven. This is the sacrifice, I think, that we have. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And the land of Edom is modern-day Jordan, by the way, which is just to the... Uh, east of Israel. Now, if you go back to Revelation 8, we have tied a few scriptures together as we look at this seventh seal or the beginning of the day of the Lord. We've had a, a silence, an uh, uh, anticipatory silence. We've seen some connections in the book of Zephaniah, Zechariah, Habakkuk, silence in heaven for about the space of a half an hour. And then we see this. I saw the seven angels, Revelation 8 2, who stand before God. And seven trumpets were given to them. So now we see the seventh seal and we see seven angels. We see the number seven con continuing to appear before us. And what we're going to have in chapter eight is four trumpet blasts. If you want the big picture, they are going to be accompanied by judgments that fall on the natural world. The land, the sea, the rivers, the lights in the heavens. We'll have two trumpet blasts in chapter 9 that will affect humanity. And we're going to see these weird-looking locusts, and we're going to see them stinging people. And, and it's, gonna be, it's just one of these weird chapters that you got to just put your seatbelt on. That'll be next time we're together. But before this happens, there's a, an attack on Earth's ecology. These seven angels are standing before God. We don't know who these angels are. There are uh, angels that some think that they are that, are that come from extra-biblical books like the book of Tobit, for example, or other extra-biblical writings. Some believe their names are Uriel, Raphael, Ragel, Michael, Sarakel, Gabriel, and Remiel. We have some of this in the apocryphal book of First Enoch and other places. And so 
Um, that is just conjecture. We don't know if that's the actual names of these angels. Really, when you look at the Bible, we don't have too many angel names in the Bible, do we? If I gave you a quick survey right now, could you name an angel? Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. That's pretty much what we got, or Satan. And we have some other extra biblical literature. So we, we can't say for certain who these angels are. But we do know this. There are seven angels. They're before God, verse 2. And they have seven trumpets that were given to them. So they are given these trumpets. What are these trumpets? If you look at the Bible and look at the big picture of the major use of trumpets, two, Mary, two primary uses of the trumpet. One was to call a solemn assembly. It was to call the people of God to the presence of God. So when they wanted to gather, for example, the tabernacle or the later, later the temple, they would blow a trumpet and the people would know that that was a call to come to the presence of God. Number one, use of the trumpet. Number two, use of the trumpet was to go to war. It was the trumpet blast. In fact, the watchman on the wall was told that he needed to blow the warning trumpet when an invading army was coming. And if he didn't blow the trumpet, he was guilty of those people's blood. They were on his hands. But if he blew the trumpet and they did not make preparations to deal with an invading army, their blood was on their own head. Well, here is seven trumpets. Two primary uses for the trumpet. One to call a solemn assembly. Second, uh, major use of the trumpet to go to war. What's God about to do? He's about to go to war. What has he just done? Called his people to his presence in solemn assembly. The people of God to the presence of God and now he's about to go to war. You'll notice in your Bible, I won't go there because we've looked at these passages before, that angels are going to be very involved in the judgment of God. Angels are involved in the salvation story when Jesus is born, the Annunciation, they're there singing when Jesus is born on that Bethlehem night. They're also involved in judgments in the Old Testament. And now they are uh, highly involved here and uh, they are going to execute God's wrath. So another angel came, verse 3, Revelation 8, stood at the altar. We saw a mention of an altar in Revelation 6, 9. He's holding a golden censer. So he's another angel. He came. He's got a golden censer. He's got much incense which was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So all of a sudden, before the judgment actually comes, the table is set. Seven angels, seven trumpets. But before the judgment comes, all of a sudden there's this angel with a golden censer and he's going to add incense to the prayers of the saints. In the tabernacle, in the book of Exodus, chapter 30, verse 3, there's an altar. And it's a golden altar. And incense goes up before the Lord. It's right outside the Holy of Holies. And there it represents the prayers of the saints that have been going up to God. And when Jesus was asked, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For 2,000 years, the church has been praying, thy kingdom come. What's God done with all those prayers? Well, you could say he's stored them up, if you will. Sometimes we wonder about prayer, right? We wonder about, does God hear, hear my prayer? We might say, what is the efficacy of my prayers, the efficiency of my prayers? What do they really mean in the end? Jesus said in Luke 18, he was telling a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. I'll tell you what, flip over there, there because it applies. Luke 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke 18, verse 1. Jesus is telling us to pray at all times, and not to lose heart. If you've been praying for a loved one, you've been praying over a situation, don't lose heart. Luke 18, verse 1 says, Now he was telling them a parable to show at all times that they ought to pray and not lose heart. And he said, There was a certain, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Luke 18, 3. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward, he, him, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wears me out. 
And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Contrast him with God, in other words. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you, that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, second coming, will he find what? Faith on the earth. Now imagine just for a second, and if you turn back to Revelation, that the church is here during a good portion of Daniel's 70th week. We don't vote for that, but let's just assume for a moment that that takes place. What would be a constant prayer for a troubled church going through persecution, trials, difficulty, and even martyrdom? What would you be praying for? I'll tell you what you'd be praying for. Thy kingdom come. <laughs> and I think you'd be praying for justice. I think you'd be praying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, save us, right? In the ultimate sense, deliver us from our trouble. And you might even be praying some what we call imprecatory prayers. Like break the teeth of those people <laughs> who are doing this. Look, they're biblical prayers, okay? I'm not recommending you praying for everybody who cuts you off on the freeway, but you know, anyway. <laughs> So here's the thing. There is a place to pray for the justice of God. Now I think the balance for this, for a modern Christian, is this. Lord, either save them or judge them. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the average person walking on the street, but I'm talking about if you were in an intense situation where you're saying, Lord, I pray that either this person gets saved or you deal with them because look at what they're doing to your people. The prayers of the saints are a vital part of the seventh seal, which is a bit shocking, but it says in Revelation 8, 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. It's interesting to me, thinking about prayer, as reading a commentary, and I think it was D.A. Carson, who's a, a well-known um, theologian, was talking about how his dad used to pray on his knees at, at a certain chair in their house. And dad would pray out loud because he needed to keep his focus. You know how sometimes when you, you decide you're going to pray and you get down on your knees and if you do that silent prayer thing, if your mind is like mine, all of a sudden you start going to the Dodger score and this and that and what flavor of frozen yogurt I'm going to get and all of that, right? So he, he would pray out loud so that he could stay on track, which is a good suggestion. And what would happen is as he was at this chair and he was praying, the kids would hear his prayers. And they, they said that they couldn't always hear everything he was praying, but that, that image of him praying was kind of um, written on their minds and souls. And one of the Carson kids said, a major reason why he returned to the Lord or returned back to the Lord when he was older, so he'd become a prodigal, was the image of his father praying. It's one of the things that the Lord used in his life to bring him back to the Lord, which is powerful. Well, the prayers of the saints, by the way, we are the saints. The church, we are the saints of God, and they are praying. We saw earlier the martyrs were saying, how, Lord, how long, O Lord, until you judge? And now the prayers of the saints come before the throne of God. And the angel took the censer, verse 5. He filled it with the fire of the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, and sounds and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All of a sudden now, the censer and the, the fire and everything that was closely connected to the prayers of the saints, all of a sudden becomes a tool of judgment. And notice what happens. He takes the censer, he fills it with the fire that's from the altar, and it gets thrown down to the earth, and peals of thunder and sounds of, and flashes of lightning and an earthquake are things that we've seen around the throne of God, right in your Bible, Revelation 4, verse 5. This is where the judgment uh, begins, right here. Fire speaks of judgment. The writer of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. At Sinai, when God descended upon the mountain, he descended upon it in fire. Moses was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses, when he talks about that situation in the book of Deuteronomy, said he was shaken in his sandals. Because people, except for fire people who are very brave, don't walk into fires. 
But Moses did. Our God is more powerful than we can imagine. He spoke the universe into existence. He is not to be trifled with. He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is love, it is true, but God is also holy. God is also just. And there is a divine firestorm that's here. What are the real master powers behind the world, says one author. What are the deep secrets of our destiny? Here's the astonishing answer. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God. Because God's judgment is going to come down and it is much connected to the prayers of God's people. The world doesn't got, find God worthy of worship. Many people in the world don't even give God a thought during their whole entire week, nor will they bother to come to a church on Sunday. There is an attitude in much of the world, and it's nothing new, where people are not grateful, they're not thankful to their creator. They can drink a glass of water, have a bite to eat, look at a sunset, think that the sun is going to rise tomorrow and the moon's coming and everything's going to be cool in their life. And for a lot of people, they suppress the knowledge of God. They exchange the glory of God for the uh, corrupted images of this world, the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. There are people who are more concerned about Mother Earth than they are the Father of Lights. More concerned about, you know, talking to us about things that in the end are going to perish. And I'm not saying not to be a good steward of the planet, but we are reading about the fact that Mother Earth is going to be burned up because the Father of Lights is the one who made the planet. We should take care of the environment. It's true. But we better not go cuckoo or wacko over these kinds of things. Now you have little creatures where you can't build something because they're a protected species. You know, they're spotted rats and <laughs> ducks and the like. And you're like, what in the world is going on? Today we can make it legal to kill a baby up to the ninth month of pregnancy but protect a spotted whatever and not be able to build something. There's something wrong with man's heart. John MacArthur comments, the environmental evolutionary pantheism that devalues man and elevates animals and plants and ignores the creator will be severely judged. Earth Day that year will be a gloomy and dismal affair. In a scorched and ravaged world, there will be little of the environment left to celebrate, close quote. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. They were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. A third, a third, and then all the grass is mentioned here. The first trumpet sounds something. There came hail and fire mixed with blood. Now, in many of the judgments that come, the wrath of God that comes, you're going to see a familiarity, a connection with the book of Exodus and the plagues on Egypt. In fact, the book of Revelation is a final uh, Exodus, if you will. It's a final uh, Passover. God is going to judge very similarly to the way that he judged Egypt in that time. And we did see hail and fire in one of the judgments of God but here it is mixed with blood. I mean, I don't know how literal to take this. Some people say blood is the color. Some people say blood is the result. But the text actually says that the hail and fire are mixed with blood. Can you imagine how brutal that would be? Can you imagine if that is literal? I mean, I've heard it, you know, uh, saying raining cats and dogs, but... Can you imagine blood coming down? What would be the message that God would want to convey with hail and fire and blood? I thought, I'm sitting at my desk thinking, I wonder if the message is for all the innocent blood that you have shed, I'm going to put it back on your head. Oh my goodness. Scary thought, isn't it? But God does reckon 
the blood of the innocent. Now, this is why it's so good to be a Christian. This is why it's so good to be part of the great multitude in heaven with the palm branch in your hand before the judgment begins. Amen? Get saved if you're not saved. Because you don't want to face this. This is just the first trumpet. There's much more to come. And if blood is also spilling in some ways from the heavens, can you imagine what that would be, what that would look like? It's scary. You have the earth burned up. You have a third of the trees burned up. You have grass burned. Everything. Mother Earth is being judged by Father God. I was at a Kentucky Fried Chicken a couple years ago. And uh, someone told me that they were, they were uh, I think, in Washington, D.C., the grass area in front of the White House. And uh, they said that there was a duck that was mating and so there was a sign that you had to be quiet because the duck was mating. So it was, it was quiet, please, while the... And you're like, oh, what? I don't even know what to say about that. And I asked the guy, are you serious? And he goes, yeah, they, they had a sign out there. Quiet, please, the, the duck is mating. I mean, all I could think of is, what a quack. I mean. <laughs> the story was real. The last part, you can take it for what it's worth. In Exodus 9, verse 25, the hail struck all that was in the field through the land of Egypt. Exodus 9, 25, both man and beast, the hail also struck every plant of the field, shattered every tree of the field. Only in Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, was there no hail. Think of the 144,000. They're, they're a picture of the children of Israel in Goshen. Egypt gets devastated by the judgments of God, the plagues of God, but in Goshen, it doesn't hit God's people. They're sealed. Look at verse 8 of Revelation 8. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. The second trumpet judgment is directed towards the sea or the ocean. A third of the sea became blood. This is probably intended to remind us of Exodus 7, 20 and 21, where the first plague that came upon Egypt was what? The Nile was turned into blood. Do you remember the Pharaoh at the time wanted to take the Hebrew babies and throw them where? Into the Nile. He wanted to make the Nile red with the blood of the babies of the Hebrews. And Moses' parents made a little makeshift ark for him to protect him. And the midwives didn't want to obey the Pharaoh. And the People of Egypt believed the Nile was a god. They called it the Nile God. They worshiped the Nile. Pharaoh would come down and celebrate the waters of the Nile, bless the waters of the Nile, ceremonially bathe in the waters of the Nile. And when Moses came and said, let my people go, and the Pharaoh hardened his neck, the Nile was turned into blood. What do you think the message was? Perhaps this. What you worship, I just killed. Your God is dead. You're going to throw the babies in there? Well, then you're going to deal with my wrath, says the Lord. And so this is how God deals with the world. Judgment has come. Judgment day has come. There will be many. Uh, well, I think, you know, I don't see any evidence when the day of the Lord starts, frankly, that anybody repents. You can wrestle with that. But once the seventh seal is broken, I can't remember one record in the book of Revelation of repentance. And this is the parallel with the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh had plague upon plague come upon him. And each time he what? This is the famous statement. He hardened his heart. Now he felt a little bit of remorse in the moment. Okay, back off. That's a lot of frogs. Okay, enough. 
Can the, fro can the frogs go away? Can the lice go away? I've sinned. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. But then what happened? He'd harden his heart and harden his heart, even though judgment was coming upon him. A third of the creatures, verse 9, which were in the sea and had life died. Can you imagine the devastation? A third of the ships were destroyed because what happened was a fiery mountain, maybe the best thing to imagine is a meteorite, was cast into the sea. Imagine what it would do to the temperature of the sea. Imagine what it would do to aquatic life. Imagine the tsunamis that would follow. Imagine the destruction to ships. And we've, we've been seeing images on the news and, and that's been to hurricanes and things like that. Imagine this fiery mountain, I don't know how big it is, goes into the sea and the damage that uh, is uh, a result of it. The world ships, the economy, uh, all being devastated. Verse 10. The third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers on the springs or the fountains of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, literally means bitterness. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The waters were made bitter. Wormwood is literally the deadly liquor ingredient known as absinthe. From the, the Greek word absinthos. It's a shrub whose leaves are used in manufacturing of absinthe a liquor so toxic that it, its manufacture is banned in many countries. The star may fall apart as it approaches the earth, scattering it, its burning blobs everywhere over the land and sea and everywhere on the earth. All the gifts that men took for granted, streams of water, clear, moving, easy to get a drink, is no longer. The waters become bitter. All the things that man takes for granted, the, the creation are devastated. And some of you are thinking, man, this is harsh. Is this God? Yeah, how long has he waited until he's judged? How patient has he been? How many appeals has he made to mankind? How many foreshadowings has he told of this day? Remember, the church is gone now. All that's left is people who would not repent. And now the judgment comes. These are the people on the earth. Can you imagine some of them? These are the people who said, ah, I don't need God. I, I don't care. When that day comes, I'll do a little negotiation with the big man upstairs. I'll tell him why I didn't believe in him. We'll have a talking to. We'll get things squared away. Really? I think the only thing that you'll be saying is, rock, please fall on me and hide me from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. The fourth angel sounded, verse 12. This is not pleasant, but this is the book you all asked to study. If you recall, some weeks back, I asked you. <laughs> the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened. The day might not, and the, um, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Earth, sea, rivers, sun, moon, stars, all those things that they thought were never going to end. You know, maybe the, the consequence of a purposeless, mindless explosion billions of years ago. Nobody's steering, by the way, in evolutionary thought. Everything you see is the consequence of a cosmic explosion or accident. Nobody's steering, by the way. Oh, there is one theory now that's come out. Aliens are steering. So that's, that's option B. Either nobody's steering or aliens are steering. So that's what they got. So, the, you know, the, the movie Contact. You know, anybody out there? We keep dialing. Somebody going to call back? Maybe, maybe aliens fired intelligent life down on this planet. That, that's how we all got here. I hope. They're more like E.T. and not the weird alien in the alien movie who comes out of your stomach. I mean, that's, if I had an option, I'd E.T. phone home. Sounds better, but this is what they got. This is what the world taught our students. This is how to be scientific, right? Evolutionary theory. That's what we got. 
And this is where we are today. The partial eclipse reminiscent of the ninth plague in Egypt, Exodus 10, 21 and 22, is temporary as God will later increase the amount of heat coming from the sun. We'll see later on. But the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 10, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in the land of Egypt for a period of three days. And I looked and I heard an eagle. The King James says an angel. This may be one of the angelic creatures of Revelation 4-7 described in appearance like a flying eagle, Revelation 4-7. He was flying in the mid-heaven and he said with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. A woe is pronounced on those who are the earth dwellers because only four trumpets have sounded and we haven't even gotten to the bowls yet. And a woe is pronounced. Woe, woe, woe. Sad. A woe in the Bible is an expression of sympathy and pity mixed with the idea of judgment. Woe. Isaiah said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. Woe is me. Woe, woe, woe. There are more trumpets about to sound. And what will the people of the earth do then? The, the question that should be stirring in all of our hearts is simply this. How does one escape these things? How does one escape the wrath of God? And the Bible is clear. Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. Now, it's not just about people who are here when these things happen. It's also about right here and right now. I've gotten two phone calls in the last 24 hours. The two dear saints have gone home to be with the Lord. And I'm so glad I can say that. They've gone home to be with the Lord. Because to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But when an unbeliever dies, what do we say? We, we see glimpses in the Bible. Look, this is just reality, folks. If you are a believer, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But if you're an unbeliever, to be absent from the body is to be under the wrath of God. Why? Because God is holy and just and he will judge sin. And that's here before us in these judgments in the book of Revelation. But it is also true that we need to escape the wrath. And the way we do it is we run to the Savior. Now, at this point, some people say, well, it sounds like a pretty harsh God. Why would I believe in a God like this? Remember, this God became a man, and he was born in Bethlehem, and he lived the perfect life that I failed to live, and he died on the cross. And when he was dying on the cross, signs of judgment were all around the cross. From the cross, Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth shook and the sky grew dark at midday. In fact, secular writers of the time chronicle what happened. That it was a fearful <coughs> darkness at noonday. Jesus was taking the wrath of God at the cross. Why? For us. Why? Because he so loved you and me. God is holy. But the Holy One of Israel came and he lived what, the perfect life I could not live and he died on the cross. And, and while he was dying, he was even forgiving those who were spitting at him and cursing him and challenging him. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. For us. So if you end up in judgment, then you're going to have to walk over, somebody put it this way, you're going to have to walk over God's dead son.
to make it. Now, Jesus is alive, but it's quite an image, isn't it? You're going to have to dodge God your whole life and reject him to end up under his judgment. But people are, we've just read about it, people are not going to trust Jesus. There are going to be people who end up under his wrath. Sobering, isn't it? And that's why we preach the gospel. We preach what? Good news of great hope, which is for all the people Jesus came to save. What does he save? You know, you think about it. You say, if you say to somebody, are you saved? What are you saying? Think about it. Saved from what? <laughs> from the wrath to come? From the judgment of God? From the consequences of my own sin? Are you saved? That's the question. And the good news is, I think this is a room filled with a bunch of saved people. Praise God. I don't want any other label attached to me but saved. <laughs> Saint. On his way to heaven. Not because I've done anything that's worthy of it, but because he paid the price. Father, thank you for your Bible, your word. It's heavy. This is a heavy chapter. We, we confess it. We know it. This is part of the story of how the world will come to a conclusion. It's hard to imagine that anybody could see these judgments as having occurred already or having happened during the fall of Jerusalem or anything like that. Uh, this, is, this is what you say is ahead, the day of the Lord. It's a day of gloom. However, it's really a day for the unbelieving, unrepentant world who refuses to come to you to be won over by your love, suppresses the truth, rejects you. That's who it's going to happen to, Lord. And we know you're not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. And that's why you've been so patient. You've waited. But you have fixed a day when you will judge the world in righteousness. And you've given evidence of this in the very space and time we live in by raising your son from the dead. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we carry in our hearts. Thank you for how sometimes even tough times turn us to you, turn us to a living hope. If you keep your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus as Lord and Savior, I would just encourage you to run to him. Run and be saved. If you're a prodigal and you've been away from the Lord, it's time to get right. It's time to be busy about your father's business. Oh, I know the world has a lot of its allures, but in the end, the world and all that belongs to it is going to perish. So hold on to the Lord. He'll be the anchor of your soul. And Father, for the sweet and dear saints that are here, and they're walking with you and doing their best day in and day out to stay close, to, to glorify you, to share the gospel, to, to pray, to walk in truth, to study their Bibles, to be servants of the Most High God. I pray you'll bless them. I pray you'll give them perseverance and strength. I pray that you'll give them everything that they need that regards uh, life and godliness, and you, and you do, and you have, and you will. And we thank you.